Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Chapter 2, yes, Ephesians chapter 2. Happy New Year to all of you. Thank you for getting out of bed this morning, even though you may not have felt like it. Glad you're here, and thank you for loving me and each other by being here with your presence. In the month of January, we want to take some space and some time to revisit some basic truths that we at Redemption Church hold dearly. And today, I want to talk to us about story. The American church is in the midst of a deep crisis. And yet that should come as no surprise because if we really think about it, the church since its existence, since its inception, has always been in the state of crisis. One theologian has said it this way, strictly speaking, one ought to say the church is always in the the state of crisis. And the greatest shortcoming is that it is only occasionally aware of it. And what I think is because of all the contemporary cultural storms, the church is waking up to the crisis. And I think the becoming aware of the crisis is actually a really good thing. And specifically, what kind of crisis the church finds itself in is what I would call an identity crisis. The church does not know who she is. The church does not know where she fits in. And consequently, if you don't know who you are, you don't know what you should be doing. The reason for this identity crisis are many. They come from both external and internal. From the external, there's this continuing effects of what we would call postmodernism. The issues of the last several years concerning racial injustice, the impact of COVID-19, the intense political upheaval, all of those external things are now finding their way into the church, and now the church is having an internal struggle with what to do with race, what to do with COVID-19, what to do with politics. And so the church is becoming deeply aware of a crisis. And the church, for the first time in American history, feels this crisis in a unique way because the church is no longer determining the moral agenda for the country. Okay? Like, just wake up to that reality. The church is also in a numerical freefall. In 2020, the median, and I'm making you go back to math, mean, median, and mode, right? Okay. The mean is not the average. It's the one in the exact middle. Am I right, math teachers? Yes. I'm wrong? The median is one in the middle. Yes, that's one I want. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Who invited my niece? Go home. The median, the one in the exact middle, if you took all the churches and found the one exactly in the middle, in 2000, there'd be 137 people at that church. In 2020, there's 67. It is dramatically decreasing in numerical people, just the number of people of coming. 
With all of that, more churches are closing than new ones are being planted. I'm not going to go through all these stats, but young people are banning the church at alarming rates. And the division within the church and denominational boundaries is growing. And with all of this, we come and, and we're in, whenever there's a crisis that comes into our lives, most of the time we, we do what? We become Freddy freakout. We just freak out over the loss of control. We're not able to put all the pieces together the way we want to and things are like just, things are slipping out of our hands and when we do that, we, in our own lives and with the church, are trying to figure out how to get a hold on this crisis. And I would say that the church is, it, this is again just big picture, at least three ways the church are trying to deal with this identity crisis. And I have these on the screen for us. The first one is what I would call the bunker down approach. The bunker down approach believes that what has worked in the past will work today. The church should not change its methods. What worked in 1950, if we want that back, we should go back to 1950. Like, stick to what worked. The problem with the church is today is because we've, you know, compromised and we've done all of these crazy things. And what we need to do is just get back to tradition. This is the bunker down traditional approach. The second approach is what we would call an attractional approach. This approach attempts to attract outsiders to a church building through a host of means to help to make the church more palatable for people. The church is struggling. We're losing people. So we got to make it so people will come and enjoy their experience. So the music is a rock concert. The sermon are like TED Talks. The kids' ministry is like the bounce house at Chick-fil-A. Or there's a third approach. We would call this a missional approach. This approach seeks to move the church outside of the four walls of the building to your house, to your neighborhood. It employs the idea that we are to be the church in everyday life. It employs the idea that we are not paying pastors to do ministry. The pastors are actually being paid to help you do ministry. And so there's this big emphasis on getting out and being outside of the church. And I would say that there's various ways churches can bunker down, there's various ways people can be attractional, there's various ways that churches can be missional. And what one church may do, may, another church may not do. Yet the church is seemingly posturing itself in one of these three ways. And each one of these possesses what I would call a temporal orientation, a time element. The bunker down looks to the past, the attractional is looking to the present, and the missional is like looking to the future. What the church should look like in the past should be in the present. We should do something new or the way the future of the church is missional. It's out there. And yet, what I want to say is that none of these are the answer. None of these, in a sense, are determinative to help the church deal with its identity crisis. 
See, the problem of the church is much more than what we would call methods. These are all methods, a methodology, a, a methodological structure of how the church is going to actually structure itself. We're going to structure it like we did in the past. We're going to structure it in a way that is palatable and hip and cool for people to come. Are we going to structure it that it's outside these walls? Well, what I want to say is that no matter how you structure the church, the problem of the church is not method. The problem that we have as a church is deeper than that. The problem with the church, what I want to say, is that it is theological. Theological in the sense that not that we need more systematic theology. We do. Not that we need to know more doctrine. This is why I love the kids' catechism. It's for adults, too, that we are reminding ourselves of the story of, of what God has shown us in his word. I'm not after just having greater and more information about theology, I think the problem is, is that the church has no theological understanding of God's story. The church fails to participate in God's mission because it is unaware of God's purposes. You cannot adequately, adequately participate in a story that you don't even know what the story is all about. So with this, the church possesses a cognitive it, it, unaware in their mind, an affectional love with their hearts. They, they have these deficiencies, which either causes churches not to be involved in the mission of God as they ought to be, or altogether about a different mission. In other words, churches become polarized with, with complete apathy or misguided zeal. What I want to say is the remedy is... What I would say is what T.D. Alexander, another theologian, this is on the screen, he says this. He says, only as we grapple prayerfully and rigorously with God's story of redemption, as it's revealed to us in the whole of the Bible, will we be fully equipped to live out our calling as disciples of Jesus Christ. Church, we must prayerfully and rigorously deal with God's story as it's revealed from Genesis to Revelation so that we might be equipped together to actually be who God has made us to be. And as we return back to this story, as we grapple prayerfully and rigorously with this, we need to ask ourselves many questions, but at least one of the questions is this, is that in the light of the story of redemption from beginning to end, the question I want to ask is, why does God have a church? Like, why does God actually have a group of people that he calls his own? Why are there a group of people who have been united to Jesus? And so if I were to ask you, why does God have a church? What's your answer? I'm not asking for those out loud, but just in your head, like, why does God have a church? And of course, I think many people, if you've grown up in the church, would immediately go to Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And I jokingly say, I don't know if you're the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. And as important as that verse is, I jokingly say that if the American church did not have those three verses, we would be completely lost as what to do. Because we need to do business with this statement. 
it's not so much that the church has a mission, but that the mission has a church. And those are very different realities. It's not so much the church has a mission, but that the mission has a church. And when you begin to look through those two differences, the church, and I'm not, I mean, we have one. It's not even a bad thing, but our churches are looking for new mission statements, new vision statements, core values, you know, all those vision mission things. Those are fine. But in essence, every church should be building that on what God is doing in the world, what God's mission is. And so many churches devote lots of time to crafting their own mission and vision statements. But if it fails to be a, a, around what God's mission and what God's vision for the world is, then it becomes less than what God intends. And so the present crisis of the church for me involves a deficient understanding of what God is doing in the world, the role the church has in what God is doing in the world, and it keeps trying to find its mission independent of God's overall mission. The church does not know who she is because she doesn't know how she fits into God's story. But this is not to say that the church is absent of a story. The church has a story. Everyone has some form of story that they make choices out of. And the church is the same way. And, and again, I'm going to be very big picture and maybe hyperbolic and another big word, pejorative and mean. But the idea is this. Here is the story that the American church has held for the last hundred years in a sense. God made the world perfect in six days, 24-hour days. Adam and Eve rejected God's ways and turned everyone against God. And because of the consequential indwelling sin that we have, we are now forever separated from God. And yet God in his love sent Jesus to come and die on the cross to take care of our sins. That if we pray a prayer and ask Jesus into the door of our heart, we will live forever in a place called heaven. That has been the overwhelming story of the American church. Now, it's not that every part of this storyline is incorrect. There's lots of true pieces to that story. But if you just take those pieces and then put them out of the true story, they have a very different meaning, a distorted understanding. And the church, because of that story, actually truncates or, or small, little, belittles the story of God in at least three ways. Number one, it belittles it because of that storyline is, number one, individual. The contemporary storyline of the church is primarily concerned with the salvation of yourself. It's how you can be right with God, how you can have your sins forgiven. And it forgets the communal aspects to the Christian story. Number two, it does it ethereally. Ethereally is the idea is that the goal of this storyline is otherworldly. It's the goal of this story is how I can get to heaven. Heaven is the theme of our music. We wonder if we'll make it to heaven. I know you all know this, but some major soccer player died this past week. Pele, right? Okay. You all check that out, right? Yeah. Thank you for all four of you. And... So many people, I mean, on Twitter, were just saying, I'm so glad you're in heaven, hopefully playing soccer with Diego, another great player. I just saw heaven all week long. 
Because this is the idea that we have of the American Christian faith is that our goal is to get out of this world and to go into another place, an ethereal place called heaven. And we truncate it temporally in a timeline. The storyline leads us to live lives only for the future. We wouldn't say that the time we ask Jesus into our heart and the time we die, that's like a waste of thing, but the only thing we really care about is the future. And we don't really know what to do from the time we pray the prayer and become a Christian until the day we die. And so we don't understand that our vocation, our calling, our job, our doing justice, our personal hobbies, and all the other things you do in this life in the name of Jesus actually matter. And so until the church includes the communal, the physical, and the present elements of God's purposes, it's going to continue to have a distorted storyline. And why is this so important? Because number one, stories have consequences. Stories have consequences. A wrong story produces wrong actions. This is why you and I, this is not out there, this is in here. This is why the contemporary church in America does so many things in the name of Jesus that are inherently destructive to the kingdom of God. Think, for example, if you're an actor and were given a role to play, and they just threw you out on stage, and you didn't even know the overall storyline, and you were just forced to come up here with a bunch of different actors and just start giving lines and saying things and reacting. How well would you do at improv? How well would you actually do at fulfilling your role in that story? You wouldn't know when to speak. You wouldn't know where to stand. You wouldn't know when to leave the stage. You'd completely, if you're like me, embarrass yourself and the director of the play. And I wonder how often that present situation in the church is who we, in sincere zeal for the gospel, want to stand up on stage and speak and act, but have no idea what we're actually involved in, are actually embarrassing ourselves and the director. Because... Churches, sorry, stories have consequences. And the church is perfectly designed to achieve its present outcomes because it lives out of this truncated, what I want to call distorted story. It has a distorted practice. And you might say this is exaggerated, Scott. You're like, you're like, you're off your rocker. Well, I might be. But I'd also ask this question. If I were to ask you, where are the streets of gold located, where are they? Shh. Right. But I... The street of gold? We'll check later in the Greek, but... <laughs> I'm not... Well, yeah, I'm not going to do it now. I'm going to let myself go for a minute. But my point is, is that I think... 99.9% of Christians would say the streets of gold located in heaven, correct? Okay, they're not. Just read Revelation 21 and 22. And we don't even know the end of our story. So if we don't even know where we're going and what the end of the goal is and what everything is all moving towards, how do you even know what to do right now? That's what I'm getting after, is that we have a distorted understanding of our story. We think we know it, we think we're good, and yet 
I just have found that we are woefully inadequate in understanding not just the end of the story, but also the beginning of the story. Because if you get the end of the story wrong, you're going to get the beginning of the story wrong. And so we live out of the story that the end of the world is where? Heaven. So what's the goal? Get everyone to heaven. And so we end up with things, statements, or ideas, and I have these on the screen too, and these might get a little like nervy and mean and mad, but we have distorted understandings, not wrong, but distorted, that man's only meaningful thing in this world is becoming a Christian and telling others how to become one. You ever heard anyone say the only thing you can take to heaven is other people? So what's the only thing that's most important? Getting other people to what? Heaven. Do I want everyone to go to heaven? Should we be telling more people about Jesus? Yes, yes, a thousand times. But when we have that idea, the physical world and all that entails presently in this world becomes secondary or actually a bad thing. Doing justice is a good thing, but it's not a necessary thing. We have this split-level understanding between the physical and the spiritual. Or we hear statements like this, Jesus came to pave the way back to, get back to get us back to God in a place called heaven. And so we have this, and again, I'm not going to, this just goes back to the whole heaven piece. Or statements like, Christian, examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith. Inspect every area of your life to ensure you're a Christian so you, are so, so you are assured of your eternal destiny. I think there are so many Christians who wake up every day and are so, so introspective about who they are, what they're doing, how many lies they've told, how many good things they've done, that they're constantly, constantly looking where? At themselves. One old Scottish Presbyterian pastor says, for every one look at yourself, take ten to Jesus. And we get so introspective that everything becomes centered on us. Am I doing enough? Am I a good Christian? Am I going to get to heaven? And obviously Paul says to examine yourself twice in the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians. So this is not a bad thing. But the idea is that this distorted story of how I can get to heaven makes everything about me. And actually takes the emphasis off of Jesus. But what if I were to tell you that God's true story had statements like this. God created the world to be his home, his temple, the place he would eternally reside with the fullness of his presence with all of his creation. And God gave a mission, this is on the next slide, a mission to Adam and Eve to prepare the earth for that arrival, and yet he failed, and yet God's answer to Adam's failure was Israel. And Israel could not do it, so Jesus, as the faithful Israel, comes and fulfills Adam's mission to bring about God's purposes for creation. And as Jesus comes to fill those purposes, he came not to make us Christians, but we're actually Christians to become human. And Jesus didn't die so he could live forever in a place called heaven. The goal of Christianity is not about how we can get up to be with God, but how God can actually come down to be with us. These statements are predominantly foreign to the church. And without these statements, we miss the story of God. So stories have consequences. But number two, stories are foundational whether via the medium of a book, movie, television, 
Everyone loves stories. It's innate to us that we enjoy movies. We enjoy books. We enjoy drama. And the affection, the love for this, this love for narrative, this love for story is not just for entertainment value. Like I, if I could get one thing across to you is that when you watch a TV show that is so compelling, it's not just entertainment. It is actually informational. It is actually giving you a story to base your life on. They inform the way we think, the things we love, and the actions we do. I mean, why do we love romantic stories? Because they give us a life, a storyline of where we'd be valued and loved perfectly. And when you watch that rom-com, great, it's telling you this is where life can be found. And what do you go look for? That life. Why do you love action movies? Because you think your life is so boring and you go out there and you see this guy go conquer the world and that sounds like fun and we need to go do it and that's what gives life to you. Don't miss that these stories are not just entertainment. They are informing you. In fact, humanity can only make sense of their existence, of their life, in the framework of a story. A couple quotes on the screen about this. It says this, that in order to make sense of our lives and to make our most important decisions about how we ought to be living, we depend upon some story. The way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life is a part? Every time you decide where to spend money, where you decide to spend your time, who your friends are going to be, where you're going to go, those questions are always answered in your mind and in your life from some overarching story that's informing and giving you life and saying, I'm going to actually make these decisions because this story says this is where life is. So where did you learn how to live your life? Where did you learn to value what you value and love what you love? Where did you learn that the, life, the purpose of life is the li pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness? I'm not going to embarrass my daughter, but my daughter went to college this year. And as she was looking through the uh, course catalog, you know what I didn't find a course called? The American Dream. There was no story called the, no course, college course called The American Dream. I don't think any of you, if you've ever seen one, I want to know. But where did we learn to love what we love, to value what we value, to think what we think? Did people sit you down in a classroom and say, Scott, you are going to love soccer? And I was like, okay. Or even to answer the most basic questions of life. Who am I? Where did I come from? What's wrong with the world? How do we fix the problems of the world? See, the red states and the blue states have their story of how to fix the world, of where they came from, where they're going. See, you can't answer any of these questions apart from some story. And this is why God actually gave us a book that from beginning to end is telling us a story. They're foundational. Number three, stories shape identities. Like at your deepest perception of who you are, 
What is your identity? We, as humans, long to attach ourselves to something to find meaning, to give ourselves satisfaction. We need to find meaning and significance through forging an identity. And what I'm trying to help us to see is that that identity that we are forming and forging and and so desperately longing for is only constructed from an underneath story. And that identity, that once we've formed that identity out of a story, then leads to what we do with our lives. So, just real quick, like, if you want to change your actions, your mission... What do you actually ultimately have to change? If you don't change your identity and your story, you're never going to actually truly change your actions and your mission. So, stories determine identities, and identities determine our actions. I mean, I'm not going to go through my life, but it's interesting that all of us have this identity construction As we grow up, Eric kind of mentioned this, as we grow up and have our different nature and nurture, our different environments, different people judging us. So, like, you know what I've never had an identity of? A singer. You know why? Because nature, I ain't got it. Nurture, never. I did take piano, but that didn't help. Environment, I didn't grow up in a house of music, and judgments. No one came to me and said, Scott, you're a really good singer. But that's how our identity construction is developed, is by nature, nurture, environment, and by other people's judgments. And all of that identity is built out of a story of the culture in which we find ourselves. Stories have consequences. Stories actually uh, are foundational. They forge our identity, but then they also have power. They have the power to change lives. Stories are not simply a means to amuse ourselves to death. As we've said, they inform and shape the life of every person. So stories then actually have inherent power. They have the power to change the very fabric of society. They inherently determine what people perceive to be real. They dictate the way individuals make sense of the world. One theologian says this, tell someone to do something and you'll change their life for a day. Tell someone a story and you'll change their life. And the way people change is through a fundamental change in the deepest belief about the story that they are giving themselves to. And the only way you change from one story to another is you find another story to be more compelling, more attractive, more beautiful. And it's not until the story of God actually captures the affections of the church will we actually see genuine change in Redemption Church. It's not just enough to know cognitively with information the story. We actually have to love it with our hearts. It must captivate us because that will actually change us. A Nigerian writer, Ben Okery, writes this. He's not even a Christian, but he says this. Stories are the secret reservoir of values. 
change the stories individuals and nations live by and tell themselves, and you change the individuals and nations. Oakery connects the inherent relationship between values and story. What a culture values is derived from the story it tells about itself. And the values of an individual holds to are always tied to their underlying belief. So if you want to change the values of society of an individual, you need to change its story. Stories have consequences. They have identities, form identities, and they have power. When I asked you to open your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, I want to read verses 11 through 21. And as we read Ephesians 2, 11 through 21, I want you to think through the story that is actually being told and those statements I made about stories, forming identities, have power to change are foundational and have consequences. Ephesians 2, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope, without God in the world, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Why? Because he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. How? By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace, and in one body reconciled both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, Jesus, we have access to the Father by one spirit. So consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. In Ephesus, there was apparently a massive distinction between Jews and Gentiles. This division is causing disunity and hostility. The Jews are looking at the Gentiles and saying, you don't live according to God's laws, and so you are actually second-class people. And the Jews began to separate from the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were like, yeah, you guys are weird. I don't want to join you. I'm going to have my own little group. And so what does Paul do to actually bring about change? He tells them a story about who? Jesus. And what he came to do. And what his purpose was. And in this story that Paul is telling them about who Jesus is, he's reminding them that, number one, stories 
forge identities. What are the identities that now the story of God gives to Jew and Gentiles? Does anyone see it in there? No one? Been brought near? Yes. Uh-huh. What else does he call up? Say again. A dwelling place. A temple, right? The, the dwelling place of God is a temple, and he's actually calling the church the temple. In fact, he says in verse 21, it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. You're no longer, verse 19, foreigners and strangers, but you are citizens and members of his household. Paul is giving multiple identity statements here, saying this story actually forges a new identity for you. You're no longer Jew, and you're no longer Ephesian. You're actually members of God's household together. You're citizens. You are a temple. You've been brought near. So, forges identity. Stories also are foundational. What what story does Paul want them to live out of, to view their life through? Paul is saying it's not enough to live your life out of a Jewish story. It's not enough to live your life out of an Ephesian story. What you need to live your life out of is this story, because this is a story that's actually going to unite the Jew and the Gentile. It's going to unite the rich and the poor. It's going to unite the black and the white. It's going to unite the men and the women And when this story actually becomes the dominating story, it actually forges an identity and makes us be people who God wants us to be. And stories have consequences. The NIV, verse 19, actually says, consequently. Because of this, there's consequences. And the consequences of this story for the Jew and the Gentile and the church at Ephesus is that they together are being built into a holy temple of the Lord, that God's presence in Chesapeake is residing in Redemption Church. And we are the people who are inviting everyone to God's presence. So the reason why the church in Ephesus, well, let's even bring it today, the reason why the church in Chesapeake, the reason why the church at Redemption Church is not fully becoming a holy temple in the Lord is because we are buying into other stories. There's the sub-Christian story. There's the red story. There's the blue story. There's the all the stories that we are a part of that we are still holding on to that take precedence. And what Paul does in Ephesians 2 with this division in the church is he reminds them of the story of God and what Jesus actually came to do. See, this isn't just some random idea. But Paul deeply believes that if we buy into the story of God, the story of God in the person of Jesus who has come in the flesh and now has sent his spirit to us so that we would come together under the banner of Jesus to reside together as God's people, we will become a holy temple in Chesapeake, being built together. Why are there divisions here? Because we have competing stories. Why do we not fully live out who we should be? Because we have bought into other stories. 
And so we want to remind ourselves that when we leave here together, the goal of the Christian faith is to constantly be reminding ourselves of stories. And every time you watch news, remind yourself this is not the true story of the world. Every time you watch a movie, this is not the true story of the world. Every time you go to the movie theater, this is not the true story of the world. The true story of the world is what will unite us and make us be who God wants us to be. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.